Praise the Lord, everyone. Let's go to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 3. Let's start reading in verse 1. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times shall come, or difficult times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such, turn away. For a few moments tonight, I want to talk to you about signs of the end of time. Lord bless you, you may be seated. Before I begin tonight, let me say what a great honor it is to be home and to be here. There's just no place like home. There's really not. And it's it's an honor and privilege to be here tonight, and I hope and pray that something I say will help challenge our lives to become different. Back in the month of May, standing at the top of the Colosseum in ancient Ephesus and looking down that long road that came to the entrance to that Colosseum. It was there that Paul met John's disciples in Acts 19 and inquired of them, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And as he began to teach them that day, He took them back down that granite road to where it started at the port area there and baptized John's disciples. And then Paul stayed in Ephesus for two years, probably the longest time that he stayed any place of his own free will. Now, he did spend about eight years in Rome, but He had no choice. He's locked up in prison. So it wasn't a place that he went because that's where he wanted to be. But at Ephesus, he had this incredible encounter with a group of people that became very dear to him. And he learned to love them dearly. Uh, So much so that on several occasions he had sent messages to them or even stopped close enough to invite the leaders to where he was at, at Miletus, and speak to them because he had an incredible love for them. Max tells us that Paul saying about himself, these are the things that I did for you and I gave you while I was with you. Standing there, in the Colosseum that day, the Lord brought back these scriptures to my mind as I was standing there at the top of that Colosseum looking down, realizing that in that same arena there were 80 plus thousand peoples gathered one day for three hours shouted, Long live Demetrius. Our great is Demetrius. For hours they chanted because Paul had begun to preach a gospel that they were convinced was going to destroy their religion. And it began to have an incredible effect upon its city. And there were thousands of converts that began to experience the apostolic message and became born-again believers. And as that number grew, there were those that were so concerned that the city would lose its identity that 80,000 of them gathered one day to shout, 
great is Demetrius. For two straight hours, there was nothing else there other than people gathered in one place. Paul wanted to enter. He wanted to challenge them. But there were those that reminded him that maybe you shouldn't do that, Paul. Stay here with us. And, but Paul's effect on that city caused an incredible revival to happen there. That church become so important to Christianity. It was from there that revival spread throughout all of Asia, or Turkey as we know it today. From Ephesus, there are six other churches that we find that all spring up as a result of this one church. They're found in the book of Revelations. Those are works that are the result of this incredible church that was here. As Paul goes by on one of his trips to Jerusalem, actually it's the trip that he knows is going to Jerusalem and that when he gets at or gets to Jerusalem, he will be bound. And it was prophesied to him while he was there that if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be put in prison, Paul. And Paul said, well, if that's what's going to happen, I, I know that that's my destiny. So I'm going there anyway. But I just need to remind you of who you are and what you've heard and never forget what you've been taught. So Paul goes to Jerusalem and becomes a prisoner and eventually winds up in Rome. And there he, his life is taken. But while there in Rome, he writes this letter to the preacher or pastor of this incredible church at Ephesus. It was still effective. It was still reaching its world. It was still having an incredible revival. And historians say that anywhere from 80 to 120,000 people uh, became part of that first church or that church that was at Ephesus. Somewhere around 70 AD, John and all of the church at Jerusalem are forced to leave and flee when Titus comes in and begins his annihilation of that country, and he lays it totally barren when he walks away. He started in the north and captured every city and tore it down, burned it to the ground. He cut down every tree. He killed every animal. When he walked away from Israel, there was not one living creature that was there anywhere in their land. All the trees had been destroyed, and the nation, the country had been destroyed. So that church fled, and it wound up at Ephesus. And there, John begins to pastor the church that's now there at Ephesus. And it, it had this incredible effect on its world. But by the time John's life is nearly over, he goes there in 70 A.D. And somewhere 20 years later, between 90 and 94, 95 A.D., there's a prophecy that comes to him while on the island of Patmos about what's going to happen in the end of time. Paul had already set the stage, and he had already begun to prophesy about signs of the end of time. But when Paul prophesied of the signs of the end of time, he prophesied about something different than John is prophesying about. John's prophecy tells us what the world will be like. Paul's prophecy tells us what the church is going to be like. These are not characteristics that you look for in the world. These are characteristics that you're going to discover inside the church at the end of time. When you start looking for the coming of the Lord and you observe the outward signs, John tells us about those. But when you want to see what happens to the church, you look at the letter Paul wrote to Timothy and said, All right, Timothy, in the last days perilous times shall come. This is what's going to happen. And here are the characteristics that will let you know that the end of time is very close. Because the first thing you're going to notice about the end of time is that people who have a form of godliness, but they will deny the power thereof. That is not the world. That is the church he is addressing. So, these are the characteristics that you'll see in the end of time in the church that men will become lovers of themselves. Men 
will start looking out for who they are rather than looking out for people that are around them. More concerned about what I get out of it or how this affects me than how my life might affect somebody else. Not concerned about affecting a brother or hurting a brother or a sister or how my life could have an effect on other people, but being more consumed with, I, I, I have these things I want to see happen, or these are the needs I have in life, or this is the conditions that I, I want to see in my life. And so I start looking at me. And as I travel America and go from place to place, and even the world today, I will have to tell you I'm seeing every one of these signs. Selfishness is on a rampage in our world. All you have to do is look at what we spend more time doing and how we spend our idle time, or maybe it's not even our idle time, how we spend time that... Maybe we should be using doing other things. I, I, I sometimes wonder if we just spent half the time connecting with people that are important to us or people that we should have a vested interest in their life and people that we can affect. If we just spent a tithe of the time we spent finding out what everybody else is doing, See, the average time people now spend on Facebook is somewhere around two to three hours per day. So that's finding out what everybody else is doing instead of what, ha- what would happen to a church if we just spent that amount of time praying or witnessing or connecting with people or being involved in somebody else's life. But our world has created the atmosphere that's bringing the return of the Lord. The Lord is coming very soon. The first time, nobody was looking for him. The only two people I can find in the Scripture that were actually looking for the coming of the Lord when he showed up the first time was the prophetess Anna and the priest Simeon. They're the only two that are actually thinking that, you know, It just could be any moment. It could happen at any time. And when Simeon finally laid his eyes on him, and he said, Now I can die in peace because mine eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. When Anna, being directed by the Holy Ghost, shows up in the temple that day, she wasn't normally there, but somehow the Lord impressed upon her, You need to go to the temple today. And when she arrives, she sees him. And now she can be satisfied that her life has been fulfilled because she has witnessed who she saw the Lord was coming for. I know that we used to preach a lot about prophecy and the coming of the Lord, and we were convinced that there were dates that it would happen by, that it didn't happen by. See, I never thought I'd be married. I remember being in youth camp in 1967 when Israel took back Jerusalem, and I was convinced by all those preachers I heard there that I'd never live long enough to get married. Seven years, 74 would be the end of it. It would be over, but it didn't happen. And then we changed it to 80, and we were convinced we'd never see 1980. Then 88 reasons why the Lord's come in 1988. That one didn't happen. And then Y2K is going to kill all of it. Everybody's life's going to be wrecked because... Computers are not going to set right, and, and our lives are going to be a disaster. And all these things that we, we were looking for the wrong signs. See, the world can see the signs around them of what the world's going to look like. But nobody can see the signs of what the church is going to look like but those people sitting inside the church. And it's you and I that's going to start recognizing these signs, and it's you and I that's going to have to start looking in a mirror every morning and checking our lives to see if any of these signs have shown up in our lives. The older I get, I do not become a kinder person. I do not mellow with age. 
I don't have more patience. I am not more gentle. I don't have much more kindness. I, I, I haven't been given a gift of long-suffering. I, my, my faith issues get shorter and shorter. I have to look at that mirror every morning and, and, and remind myself, you know, James, the easiest thing in life for you to do is to get focused on you and forget about everybody else and start simply living your life for what you want and what you get and what you desire, then looking at life and start thinking about how will my life affect somebody else. Fifteen years ago, I kept being asked a question on a repeated basis. I heard it hundreds of times. And the question I was asked 15 years ago was, is this a heaven or hell issue? Well, this keep me out of heaven. If, my, if I do this, is this going to cause me some problems with God? That question has totally gone away. I, I, I haven't heard that question recently. What the question I hear on a regular basis now is, Brother Hughes, don't you think I have a right to be happy? So life's not about maybe this might affect this relationship. Life now is about I've got rights, and happiness is my right. I've got a right to be happy. I don't have a right to be happy. I have a decision to be happy. Happiness is not a right. It's a choice. Happiness is not something you discover or something you earn. It's just a decision you make. Paul said, I've learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. I've learned how to be abased. I've learned how to abound. I've learned to be in need. I've learned to have everything I want. It doesn't matter what my conditions of life are. I have made a decision that no matter where I'm at or what's happening, life is not going to control me. Circumstances will not dictate my life. I will make a choice that I will not start focusing on me. And the closer we get to the end of time, the more Christians, apostolics, are going to start becoming more focused on themselves than they are anybody else. So when I start turning inward and I start thinking about me, then the next characteristic that shows up is covetousness, desiring what everybody else has, never being satisfied, or never being content, having to have more and more and more and more, desiring more, wanting more, taking more, receiving more. That's covetousness, becoming self-centered. And the more I want, then arrogance shows up, proud. I, I, I wind up full of this arrogant spirit about life and who I am and, and what I can do. I hope that I never get to the place, and I know it's a battle that I will fight every day of my life, thinking that I have it all figured out and I've got the answers. I don't have the answers. I don't know how to come in or go out. I, I, I don't know how to get in the house of God. I, I need God's help every day of my life because the day I think I have it figured out is the day I start becoming self-centered, arrogant, proud, boastful. Blasphemers. That word blasphemer or blasphemia is not slandering God. The best translation we have in our language is gossip. Gossip. Talking about everybody else and everybody else's problems. And so, hey, we don't need gossip anymore. we got Facebook. You want to know what people are doing? They're dumb enough to post it. Go do something really, really, really dumb. Take a picture. Post it. Then get mad when someone says something about it. That's what we're doing. Blasphemers. 
disobedient parents. Have you ever seen a generation that could care so much less about what mom and dad thought than the world we're living in today? Now, it's sad that that's the characteristics of the world. What's what even worse is when it shows up here. And our children start getting this attitude that I don't need mom and dad. You know, that, that issue was so critical to God that according to Moses, he took his finger and chiseled it in stone. And it's number five on that list. There's not a chiseled asterisk beside it. And at the bottom of the tablet, there's another asterisk that starts listing conditions. And the conditions are, you only have to do it if they're good people. You only have to do it if they do what you want. You only have to do it if you like them. The condition is, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they're good or bad. It doesn't matter if you like it or you don't like it. God said, this is such an important issue to me. I will chisel it in stone. Because God knows that if you don't learn how to do that, it's going to wreck your relationship at church. Because God is Father. And so if you start having issues with Dad, you're going to start having issues with God. If you have issues with Mother, you start having issues with the church. Because this church is Mother. So all those things start getting transferred with inside of who we are, and we start focusing on the junk, and we miss out on the relationship. Unthankful, unholy, without natural affection. Now, the first thing we want to jump to a conclusion on that one is that that's got to be speaking about homosexuality, but it's not. It literally translates unloving, not loving those people you should be loving. Choosing not to love somebody you made a commitment to love. Now, I I, uh, participated in a marriage a few months back, and I had dealt with people with so many issues for so long that I thought, you know what? I got an opportunity here to do this in a way that they will never forget what I'm going to say. So I began that traditional marriage ceremony by saying, we're here together in the presence of God and in this great crowd of witnesses to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony. Now, let me pause and tell you what you just said. What you just said was, or what I just said was, all these people that are here are only here because you invited them. They didn't crash this party. They didn't show up because they saw a wedding and they like weddings, and so they're just going to show up. These are people you sent an invitation to, hoping to get something in return. But You invited them. Now, what you have just done is given permission to everybody in this room to criticize your behavior from this day forward if you don't do what you've been telling these, what you're going to tell each other you're going to do. Not only are these people listening, but God's listening. And so, now you are going to make some choices and you're going to say some words that other people are hearing. So five years from now, or two years from now, or a month from now, if things are going bad, you don't throw the towel in. See, that, that's without natural affection. I, I, I choose not to love somebody because I don't like them. They're not doing what I want. Or any other reason you choose. That's what the church is going to start doing. Not the world. That's going to show up here. That's going to be how we treat one another. That's how we're going to interact with each other. Here's the end of time. 
I will love them when they love me back. I will, I will nurture them when they treat me correctly or properly. And I reminded the couple that day, who happened to be my niece, that when you say that I promise to love and to hold in sickness and in health, in prosperity and adversity, I promise. What you have just promised is that if, if he gets up out of the bed every morning and he kicks you in the shin, you're going to love him anyway. If she gets up out of bed and kicks you in the shin every morning, you promise to love her. That's adversity. See, our world says we don't have to do that anymore. We, we get to choose who we love and how we love them. And if they don't love us back, we are not obligated to love them at all. Now, it took grandkids for me to figure that one out. You know, you're not lovable when you come in this world. We don't show up asking mom, how, what time do you like to get up tomorrow? What time do you like to go to bed? When is lunch? I want my schedule arranged to meet your schedule. I don't want to give you any kind of a problem at all in life. I want to get in tune with everybody here and figure out what everybody else is doing. That's the way we come to this world, right? We're angels. That's what we say. They're, they have halos, and, and they're just these little angels, and they show up, and they're just incredible bundles of joy. They irritate you, don't they? It's not a good idea to tell a 60-year-old, you're not my boss, and you can't tell me what to do. Now, folks, that's not lovable, and you don't want to hug it. irritating. I don't like you. You're not my friend no more. Do you throw them away? No. You love them because they're valuable, not because they return one thing to you. You don't love them because they loved you back in the beginning. They don't even know how to love you back. You love them because of who they are and how valuable. That's, nat- that's loving naturally. Without natural affection, is only loving if you get something back in return. Manipulating people to get what you want. 2,000 years ago, Paul prophesies. Here's what the end of time is going to look like. Here's what the church is going to look like. Here's what people that shout and run the aisles going to look like. We're going to start focusing on me and not anybody else. Thinking about what I can get out of this. What would happen if you and I, during this season of giving, would start looking around us for people who don't have anything or people whose don't have the ability to enjoy life or maybe Christmas like someone else. And picking out somebody and say, you know what? Without them knowing, I'm going to bless their life. I, I want to do something for them to make this a different world this time than the last time. I was at a church just a few weeks ago and the week before Thanksgiving. And they were planning on distributing 75 turkeys, full Thanksgiving dinners to people that were in the community just to bless somebody's life so that we don't become so focused on us that we forget about everybody else. And the moment I show up and crawl up on that throne when it's vacated by Satan and he doesn't have control of me no more and that throne is empty and I either put God there or I crawl up there. And if I crawl up there, I'll become selfish. I'll start only looking for myself or what happens to me and then I don't care what happens to anybody else. Truce breakers. Vow violators. That's a truce breaker. 
creating vows and violating them. That's what truth spreads. Not the world. Not religion. Because at the time of this writing, there's one church. Not a thousand different kinds. Just one. Just one. And to that just one church, he's saying, okay, here are the issues that you need to focus on and pay attention to. Incontinent or without self-control. Fierce. Savage. Despisers of those that are good. Traitors. Petty. High-minded. But here's the end result. It's going to happen. The moment that focus is, is turned from others to me. Lovers pleasure more than lovers of God. Enjoying that thrill or, or, or focusing life on the pleasure of life and trying to just get all the pleasure I can get out of life. The problem with pleasure is that it will literally hijack your brain and take your brain over. It literally will rewire the circuitry of your brain. And the nerves that would go from pleasure to conscience gets rerouted back to pleasure so that it just becomes this vicious cycle of a high that doesn't produce enough high, so you've got to get another one. And when that one doesn't produce, you've got to get one higher than that. And when that one doesn't produce, you just start this vicious cycle that starts removing a conscience. And then I don't care how, what it requires of me to, to receive it. It doesn't matter who I hurt. It's only about me and what I want. And then pleasure becomes my focus. And the instant pleasure becomes my focus, I start creating a problem in my life that I'm the only one who can change. And according to most research that I've read, they're really the only way that you'll ever truly get pleasure out of your life is through prayer and fasting. Now, that's what the medical field says. Now, isn't that incredible? Prayer and fasting. Because your, your, your need to eat is located in the bottom part of your brain, the limbic system. So if you can control it, it controls everything else around you or any, anything else about the brain. So when I can't get my life where I want it, what happened to a little bit of fasting? What happened to prayer? Those are the things that change our life. That's what's got us to this place. That's what keeps me from becoming an evil person because I have the potential to do that. Everybody in this room tonight has the ability to become evil. All it takes is for me to start getting my eyes diverted off of trying to reach those that are around me or help those that are around me and start returning that and focusing upon me and my needs and my wants and my desires. When I do, I'll become evil. I don't care who I hurt. It doesn't, care. It doesn't matter what my words are like or how I say them or how I respond because they're not important. My needs are. I have a right to be happy, and you're not making me happy. When I'm asked that question about happiness, it's always with the fact that this person's not making me happy. So I've got a right to be happy, and there's got to be somebody out there to make me happy. And that's where the lie's at. Nobody can make you happy except you. You want to be happy? Then you got to choose to be happy. We want our lives changed. We want to affect our world. We want to change our world. This is that time of year that more suicides happen, more family issues show up. There's more fighting between families and relationships than any other time of the year. This is the most chaotic time of the year because the pressure's on. And, and now the pressure is how, much, how many more gifts do we give this one or, or you're giving them more than you're giving me. And, and all it becomes focused on is what I get out of it. And now that has the ability to affect me. I don't make a decision. Standing at the top of that Colosseum that day, the Lord began to talk to me about this passage of Scripture. This is what my church is going to look like at the end of time. 
here's where we're going to be. Because life is not about how I can affect someone else or how I can help someone else. It's what do I get out of it? Me. And when me shows up, the end result is always going to be about the pleasure derived from the experiences. So I have to make a choice. I have to make a decision. I'm not going to let that happen. I'm not going to become self-centered. I'm not going to become focused on myself. I'm going to check every one of my decisions to make sure that there's not some ulterior motive behind it trying to see what I can get out of this instead of how I affect somebody else. I have become incredibly aware of what my life can do to somebody else. I'm watching those six little kids, and I'm realizing that if I mess up, I'm going to mess their life up. If I do something that, 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 that has the potential to harm, I'm going to affect their lives. And I've got to focus on if I want their lives to be different, then I've got to control this one. I've got to work on this guy because he's not kinder than he used to be. He's not nicer than he used to be. He, he has the real potential to be evil the older he gets. We get more calloused. See, life calluses us. Have you ever watched and noticed how young couples are, are so kind to each other? You ever notice that? Sometimes they're like Siamese twins. <laughs> Remember when cars had the seat that went all the way across instead of the, 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 the separation in the middle? Where, where'd they ride? <laughs> but listen to two older people talk sometimes. We can say things that are so cutting, so hurtful. We can do it. Because we lose that, that sensitivity to, you know what, my, my words could hurt somebody. The older you get, you start realizing, you know, there's an end down there. When you're way back there in the beginning, you don't look at the end. But at 64, I can see the end. It's not real far out there. It's, it's getting closer and closer. Now I'm aware, whoa, my words do hurt. My life does affect. Can I stare at James in the mirror long enough every morning to make sure I have him under control where I refuse to let his behavior become a stumbling block to somebody that's important to me? Or am I going to get to the point in life, which is a, this is a, a, a conversation I've had with many people over the last four or five years. Not just one, many. I'm old enough to say what I want to say. I got a right to say what I want to say. Now, their kids won't talk to them, won't have nothing to do with them. They can't get them to come to their house. They don't even want to be around them. But yeah, I got a right to say it. Just because you got a right to say it doesn't mean it's a good idea. See, James says that your tongue is a flamethrower. It is a fire from hell is what James said. And you know what's amazing? That's the genesis of the New Testament. The first issue James had to address in the New Testament church, first issue was controlling the tongue, not using the tongue as a flamethrower, not scarring or, or charring people by what I say or the way I say it. Now, we Americans, we, we think we got all these rights, and so I got a right. Your Constitution don't work at home. You'll destroy your family real quick if you let it show up there. I might have rights, but it's just not a good idea. You know, those little words like, you're fat. You're ugly. Putting on a little weight there, huh? That's a flamethrower. I'm really meddling tonight, aren't I? Matter of fact, I wish I had a camera to show you your faces. 
there's a little bit of shock and all. I don't know if there's any all. Oh, there's a whole lot of shock. How dare he say that? It's in the book. That's how I dare I say it. Paul reminded us 2,000 years ago, all right, here's, here's what you're going to battle with before the Lord comes. You're going to battle with keeping you out of number one and putting somebody else number one. You're going to battle with making your wife number one or your husband number one or your kids number one or somebody. You're going to battle with not becoming that person that crawls up on the throne of life and then everybody else has to bow down to you. That's the struggle. We're going to have a struggle with, with the world and, and how it's going to try to affect doctrine and how it's going to destroy us with, with worldliness. That's not the issue. Holiness is really not going to be the issue at the end of time. What's going to be the issue? Self-centeredness. Life about me. Not caring about anybody else. That is the number one. That's the starting criteria that builds every other characteristic that shows up. Me. Me. Now, I can take that little thing out and and now I have memorialized me. And it's called a self-e. Does that not say narcissism? I remember standing in China. I was actually sitting in the airport at the terminal fixing to catch a flight from Sion to Singapore. And I started looking in the terminal. I saw at least, and I'm not exaggerating, at least 30 to 40 people take their phone out and extend it and push that button. It's easy to tell what they're doing because you can see their face on it. They reversed the camera. It's an epidemic of our world. Me. See, life's not about me. Life's about this lady over here and that young man back there and that young lady that's with the kids. And those three that show up, that's what life's about. Because I can hurt them really bad by my behavior. I can let my tongue wreck their lives if I choose. I got to choose. Okay. I am not going to become that characteristic that defines the end-time church. I want to be part of the end-time church that's producing revival, that's affecting its world and its community why? Because we don't love us, we love others. And the Jesus said the defining characteristic that the world is going to know you're my disciple is if you have love one to the other. It's not doctrine, it's not holiness, it's not anything. And these other things are incredibly important. That's not my point. My point is at the end of time, self will be more of a problem than anything else. And if I don't do something to work on self on a regular basis, the potential to become evil grows exponentially each day. Because when I think about me, I derive pleasure from it. And then I just start unplugging conscience. It doesn't take long before I have no conscience. And now it's just all about me and not anybody else. So during this Christmas season, can we turn outward? Can we focus on what we can do for somebody else instead of what we can do for ourselves or what we get out of it? Not look for how many presents I get, but what can I do to make somebody else's life happy? Or what, what kind of, of joy can I produce in someone else's life? Can I go out of my way and be nice to someone, kind to someone? I challenge you to do that over these next four weeks before Christmas shows. See how many people that you can cause to smile because you did something that produced a smile. Don't cut them off on the freeway. I saw it today. Just It, it, it happened. 
and they chased one another down the feeder trying to get even because one of them didn't like what the other one did. Almost caused everybody else to have a wreck. That's my world. It'll get worse as the pressure builds between now and December 25th. It's going to get much worse. Why don't we make a conscious effort? You know what? Here's what I'm going to do. I every day are going to get up and, and in my mind make a list of somebody I want to do something special for that day and go out of my way to do something special for them. How would we affect their lives? That helped me get off the throne. I'd quit being God and he'd become God. I'd take self out of the way and say, no, I'm not going to let self do that. I don't, I don't want to become a statistic of the end of time. I don't want my life to start affecting everybody else's life because of my anger, my bitterness, my resentment, my jealousy, my hate. I want to affect somebody for good. I want to make their life different. You know, since I started trying to do that a few weeks back, every day the Lord has sent someone or allowed me to come in contact with someone that I could do something kind to every day. That's the season we're in. Gracious Father, thank you tonight for your word. Thank you for loving us enough that you had put in your word the conditions of the end of time so that I could focus on not allowing myself to become one of those characteristics that you list. God, I, I pray tonight that we'd have the courage to take a personal inventory of our lives and we'd open our hearts. We'd ask you to stand with the mirror of your word and let it reflect the inward heart and let me see myself the way I really am. Lord, help me tonight to invite you into my life and not be afraid to give you full reign of my heart and say, Lord Jesus, I give you permission to walk through the corridors of my life and remind me of my behavior and characteristics that had the potential or possibility of hurting or maybe that it did hurt someone. And I'll make a conscience effort to do everything I can to correct what I may have done and to love in ways that I have not loved before. Lord, would you place some soul upon my heart tonight? Would you allow my life to affect somebody else's life? Lord, would you give me an opportunity to show the same kind of kindness to someone else, the same kind of love to someone else that you show to me on a regular basis when I show up at an altar repenting of the same problem that I have repented of on numerous occasions. You never turn me away. You never ridicule my behavior. You never make me feel worthless. You never cause me to leave with my head down, my face red. You've never shamed or embarrassed me. So, God, could I take that same love and same feeling that you give to me when I really don't deserve it, and can I be an ambassador for you and start searching for people that I have the ability to return or to reflect you so that I can look like you and act like you. In a season when people and life begins to be more consumed and concerned about me instead of you. Let this be a season that I fall in love with you again and that I, I'm not looking for what I get out of it, but I start looking to you. And I, when I get close enough to you, I can see where you're looking 
so that your gaze can become mine and I can see the heart that's lonely, the heart that's desperate, the heart that needs just a little bit of courage or cheer. God, could I touch that heart? Would you allow me to become a vessel that you could flow through to touch somebody else's life and bring the reason for you coming to someone else where they can see that your love for me is reflected in my love for them. Lord Jesus, I need you in my life. I understand and realize tonight that the easiest thing for me to do is to deceive myself into thinking there's nothing wrong with me when the fact is there's many things wrong in my life. And it's just me. I'm a sinner, Lord, and I have to repent again because in my flesh I am a failure, but I need you in my life. And I am not afraid, Lord, to admit my need for you. Would you let your spirit step in the pulpit of our heart and preach to us? Well, I've been speaking tonight. I know you stepped into some heart and you preached to someone. I pray, Lord, that have the courage to listen to the preacher that you, as you preach to them and not be afraid to respond to what you say. Would you preach to our hearts? Would you help us to create the strongest families in all the world? Because this church is no stronger than our families. And if we have chaos in our families, this church cannot be strong. So help us, Lord, to build strong relationships with those that we love and create the right atmosphere so that your spirit can move and we can affect our world and we can change our world. I live in a world that needs you, Jesus. There's no hope of them finding you without me. So help me to get out of the way so that your spirit can flow through my life so that it can affect those that are around me. Help me to become that vessel you flow through to touch someone else's life, Jesus. Bless our, bless your children tonight. Would you touch our hearts, Jesus? We worship you. Would you respond to what you feel? Would you respond to whatever he is speaking to you? Don't be afraid. Whatever it is that he has, that he has brought to your mind tonight, would you respond because he's here tonight? He knows everything. Sometimes we act like he has no clue, but he knows everything about our life. And he's still reaching for us because he desires that we get close enough to him that we take on his nature and we become a reflection of who he is. Would you stand tonight? Would you worship him? Would you entertain his presence tonight? Would you let him speak into your life? Would you make a decision tonight that you're not going to become one of these characteristics that would symbolize or let the world know what the church looks like in the end of time? I'm not going to let selfishness. I'm not going to let self-centeredness. I'm not going to become disobedient. I, I'm not going to become proud. I, I don't want any of these characteristics in my life. I need to do everything I can to get them out. I, I want to stand in front of your word every day, making sure that none of those characteristics are present in my life. I need you tonight, Jesus. I worship you, Jesus.